Welcome everyone to the All NBA podcast, part of the All City Network. As you can tell, I am not your host, Adam Mares. I'm Gerald Bourget over with PHNX Sports, filling in again. And as always, we are joined by our esteemed co-host, Tim Legler. Tim, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great. A wild night in the league. There, there were some interesting games, interesting games last night for sure. Um, and I'm thinking I'm probably doing better right now than maybe some other people in Phoenix. I'm guessing after last night. Ooh. Man, we we had a show last night. Let me tell you, the chat, they are sharpening their pitchforks. They are lighting their torches out here. It is is not great out here in the Valley, but we're going to get into all of that. Uh, Just a reminder, everyone, we are presented by DraftKings Fantasy Sports. Check out what DraftKings has to offer this season with code ALLNBA because life's more fun when you're in on the action. DraftKings, the crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Age and eligibility restrictions apply. Void where prohibited. See DraftKings.com for details. Well, Tim, let's dive right into the biggest news of the night. Obviously, we got an update from Shams Sharania that kind of came out of nowhere on John Morant. Uh, He has suffered a torn labrum in his shoulder. He will undergo season-ending surgery. Uh, I know that like, look, the Grizzlies were in town playing the Suns, and he was kind of questionable heading into that game. He was a late scratch. It was kind of a bummer. We were looking forward to watching Jaw play out here. Uh, and now we get this bombshell drop that he's done for the year, basically, after just a couple of games returning for the Grizzlies. Is there any other diagnosis from this situation other than the Grizzlies' playoff hopes are pretty much kaput? No, I think that that's that's going to cook them. And you can just go by the results they had before he came back and started to play um, and what they miss with him. He, he just he brings them an element that they're going to need to make up that kind of ground, which is, you know, he's a, he's a one-off. He's an anomaly. There's one John Morant that has that sort of explosive athletic ability at that position. He gives them a swagger. He gives them you know, the ability to take the ball places on the court that the defense can't prepare for and he just makes the game easier for everybody when he's out there because of the way he attacks. So no, I, I think this is going to be too much for them to overcome. And uh, you know, it's a, it's a tough stretch for John Morant. Look, some of it he brought on himself. We know that. So he certainly contributed to, to the, his season to this point with the suspension. And now, you know, he comes back, plays a little bit, six and three with him, you know, putting up typical John Morant numbers and you know that his best was about to come because he's probably just now getting his real game legs under him. And boom, there you go. Uh, you get the rug taken out from under him. So you talk about a year that John Morant would like to forget. I think he's he's right in the midst of it. And unfortunately for the Grizzlies, I just don't see a way that you're going to be able to you know pull this thing together when you're talking about being, um, you know, what, four and a half games back right now of the pl- last play-in spot. Um, and – the teams in front of you, Utah playing very well right now. Golden State, you, you think maybe that they're going to be better the second half of the year. They're going to get Draymond Green back soon. So the teams that are directly in front of Memphis that they're trying to catch, you know, where's the hope come from? And then in front of them, it's the Lakers, it's the Suns. I don't think the Rockets necessarily are going to drop off to that extent or the Pelicans who are red hot. So you just look at the totality of it, Gerald, and it looks like, you know, for Memphis, you start thinking about next year. Yeah, that that six and nineteen hole in those twenty five games without Jaw, they dug themselves a pretty big hole there. And it's tough because I feel like obviously when they played here in Phoenix and beat the Suns without Jaw, it felt like they had their wind in their sails because they also didn't know what was coming in terms of this absence that Jaw was going to be out. Now you get this kind of 
crippling news, uh, it, I think it changes the dynamic a little bit. And, and we should note, like in those first 25 games, it wasn't just Jaw that they were missing. Obviously, Smart missed a good amount of time. They were missing, you know, six or seven guys some nights. So I think they'll be, they won't be a pushover, but like you said, four and a half games to make up in the West, that's a lot. And you just look at the numbers with and without Jaw in the nine games he's played, they were a minus three overall. Um, and that was partly because there was a 32 point blowout to the Kings in there, but they're seven and 20 without Jaw this season. And they've been outscored by 201 points in those games. Like the math is hard to ignore there. Uh, as much as having Marcus Smart will help this team, and as much as Desmond Bain and Jaron Jackson Jr. are playing great basketball, like I, I don't see them overcoming that in the West. There's so many teams that are probably going to do better in the second half, like you mentioned. I think the Suns are one of them. Uh, we should set the record straight, though, because I feel like there's this perception that now that Jaw is done for the season, the Grizzlies are going to start shipping guys off for a fire sale or something like that. We should note that almost everybody except for, I think, Biombo and Tillman are under contract for next season. So, Tim, if you're the Grizzlies, what are you looking at the rest of this season to try to build or accomplish? Yeah, I think at this point, it, you, all you're trying to do is, is you know, your veterans are going to compete and there's no way they're going to go out there and lay down and, you know, go into lottery mode. And, you know, they're, they're not going to have that mindset because they've got some veteran guys on that team. They're not going to just, just mail in a year. Um, you see, you're just going to try to develop what young players you do have on the roster. And, and you know, unfortunately for them, the identity of how they play completely changes. Look, Marcus Smart is a guy that played point guard as a starter for the Boston Celtics, and he's certainly more than capable to be a guy that can run a team, but he's not going to give you necessarily that elite-level playmaking to make guys better. He's not going to give you, you know, if, if you know, and it's one thing, if, if you can't do that and you're playing point guard in this league, well, then can you better be able to go get me 30 you know, on a nightly basis, because that's kind of what that position looks like now. You either have guys that are mainly facilitators and make the game very easy for you, and then we'll chip in with, with 15 to 20 most nights, or they're going to be an explosive scorer, right? And then you have certain guys that are a combination of both, and now you got all league players. But that's what the position looks like. And so now the identity of your team, like generate offense in a way that's completely different without that speed up the floor that Jod gives you, without the ability to just get in the lane at will, and break down defenses as a threat to finish at the rim just changes the whole dynamic of how you play. So I, I think I just think it's 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 a difficult situation for them. If this was a group of you know a bunch of guys twenty four and under, then you go okay. You know what? This is this is a lost year. You know, heck, even Golden State went through this right in in the Steph Curry era. Right, they had a season with all these injuries, and they just basically went into tank mode. They weren't competitive at all. And they had a plan, though, that these guys were going to come back and they were going to have another run in them, and they made it. In this situation, it's hard because you got this mixture of a few young guys, but you got a lot of vets, guys that have been around a while. So, you know, you can't just go down that road right now. They're going to try to be competitive, I guess, see, you know, and see what happens on a nightly basis, and maybe they can make things interesting at some point. But it just for me, it's too hard to change the style of play and figure out where all that offense creation is going to come from on the fly. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. These next five games are going to tell us a lot for the Grizzlies. They're at Dallas versus the Clippers versus the Knicks versus the Warriors and on the road against the Timberwolves. So we're going to learn a lot about what we can expect from this Grizzlies team over that stretch. But I think most people would agree their, their play-in shot is pretty much over. Um, 
But we're going to take our first break now. And on the other side, we're going to talk about Tyrese Halliburton's injury and what it means for the Pacers' upcoming stretch. But first, the NBA season is in full swing right now. And when you can't get enough action of the sport, you spice things up by betting on the DraftKings Sportsbook, an official partner of the NBA. Right now, new customers can bet five bucks and get 200 instantly in bonus bets. We were just talking about the Grizzlies. If you're looking to spice things up, Grizzlies at plus 285 money line against Dallas tonight. They might have a little wind in their sails with John Morant. I don't know, just something to consider. Call to action, download the DraftKings Sportsbook app with code ALLNBA. New customers can bet just five bucks on the NBA and get 200 instantly in bonus bets only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code ALLNBA. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccp.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash basketball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. All right, Tim. So, I mean, last night was a tough night for NBA point guards. Obviously, we got the John Morant news. And Tyrese Halliburton took a nasty fall in that game against the Celtics. Fortunately, we did get some good news this morning from ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski. It appears that he's not going to be out for a long period of time. He has a grade one left hamstring strain, according to an MRI on Tuesday. He's expected to be reevaluated in about two weeks, and there's relief that he's avoided serious injury. Um, I mean, I was obviously when a player goes down, sometimes you see teams have that kind of jolt of like, we're going to win it for this guy, or we're going to do it for this guy. And I felt like that kicked in last night against the Celtics. But you look at the Pacers' upcoming stretch of games that they have here. They're currently 21-15, and 15, six in the East, which is the same record as the Heat in fourth, the Magic in fifth, the Cavs in seventh, and the Knicks in eighth. So this is going to be an interesting stretch where they're either going to fall behind that pack or be able to keep pace with them. They're five games ahead of ninth place Bulls, so they're not in danger of sliding out of the top eight there. But over the next two weeks, they've got the Wizards, They've got the Hawks on the road, Nuggets on the road, Jazz on the road, Kings on the road, Blazers on the road, Suns on the road, and then the Nuggets at home. What are you anticipating for these next two weeks or so without Halliburton out there? Yeah, look, well, if they get the kind of play that they got last night at Andrew Nemhart, TJ McConnell, they're going to be okay. Um, Those guys were amazing last night. They went for 21 and 10 combined um, as a lead guard. And look, they're clearly not Tyrese Halliburton, right? I mean, he's, he's special, special transcendent talent. Um, here's the thing I want to start off by saying, like that type of injury, having experience with this kind of thing, they're talking about reevaluating in two weeks. When you hear something like that, you're thinking actual time frame. That might be more like four weeks, five weeks. And at that point, you're pushing into all-star weekend. So you start to think like if, if, if this is, you know, for three, four weeks out, he has not played and he's getting close at that point. Don't be shocked if they say, well, let's take the extra rest that he's going to get over All-Star Weekend. And, you know, I don't want to be gloom and doom here for Pacers fans or, you know, speak. Look, I didn't examine his his uh, hamstring. I'm not a doctor there. I'm just talking about the, the terminology and the way that they said that. 
they didn't say he's going to miss a minimum of two weeks. They said reevaluated in two weeks. That tells you a lot. That's a big difference um, in terms of when you might actually see him. So, you know, this this could be a situation where you miss 10, 12, 15 games potentially without Tyrese Halliburton. And now here's the thing. I just mentioned the two guys that back him up, Gerald, and, and they played great last night. You're, you're not going to get that kind of production from those guys every night, and you're not going to replace what Halliburton does. The one thing that the Pacers do have going for them is their style of play and their identity and their pace is incredibly difficult for, to prepare for in the regular season. So this is different than, you know, you're, you're, you're missing a guy that's an isolation-heavy player that's going out there getting you 30 every night, and what are you going to do? You know, if you're the Sixers and you lose Embiid for 10, 12, 15 games and your whole offense runs through this guy, well, now what are you going to do? It's not quite that way with Indiana. It's not like Tyrese Halliburton's coming down and isolating every play. It's the pace that he creates. Now, he's going to make plays and passes and some deep shots that the guys they have can't make, but there's going to be plenty of opportunities that look a lot like it does you know, when he's playing because of the way they space the floor, because of how quickly they get it up the floor, how quickly guys shoot it, the way that they move it. They're still going to put up numbers. I mean, this isn't a team that's all of a sudden going to score 100, 105 points a game. They're still going to be scoring 120 and if you're not ready for that on a given night and you're not fully committed to getting back in transition and keeping the ball in front of you, there's still going to be a problem to win. So I think Indiana actually can keep their head above water without Tyrese Halliburton. You know, and then they're just right now, they're just special offensively when he's playing. And they're they're one of the great stories in the league here over the last two weeks with what they're doing and who they're beating and how they're beating them, including last night. You're winning that game when he goes down a second quarter. And it's incredible to beat the Boston Celtics after you just got smoked by them on the previous game. So I, I'm, I'm confident that Indiana is going to be okay and they can weather the storm without Tyrese Halliburton. Um, and maybe you play 500 basketball waiting for him to come back and then make your push over those last couple of months. Yeah. And I think 500 basketball would be perfectly acceptable for them. Obviously the longer that he's out with that reevaluation period, like you mentioned, um, that gets a little bit more tricky, but it's not like they're a bunch of games above 500. I think they're six above 500 right now. So staying around that level would be just fine for them, I think. And, and it's an interesting opportunity to kind of make a testament to this system, to what Rick Carlisle has built, to the pieces that they have aside from Halliburton, because there aren't many teams that we could say that about, you know, take away their primary offensive engine, and they're still going to be able to put up 120 points a yeah. game. Um, it, it's a testament to the pace and, and the style of play that they have. Because I was looking at the roster and I was like, who needs to step up? And I think you nailed it. It's not necessarily one player outside of the point guards who's going to have to step up and shoulder a scoring load. It's just continuing to play that style of basketball. So the Pacers are going to be an interesting team to keep an eye on. And obviously we'll be waiting to hear more about when Halliburton is going to be eyeing his return after these two weeks of reevaluation time are up. Um, I will say that having two quality backup point guards like McConnell, like Nemhard, is going to help them a lot. Um, and I am interested to see because it felt like earlier in the season, you know, Rick Carlisle was was talking a little bit about how McConnell hasn't gotten his opportunities because, you know, they got, they had Halliburton, they had Nemhard, he was kind of riding the bench. And lately, he's been able to step into that role to play well for them. He looked like a guy who might be on the trade block heading into the trade deadline. Now it feels like he's a guy that you need. I don't know. Do you see him carving out a role for himself over these next few weeks to make him kind of not untouchable, but a guy that they would prefer to keep around rather than ship out in February? 
Yeah, I, I don't see how, you know, that's not the case already. I, every time I watch TJ McConnell play, I just scratch my head of how he's ever facing inconsistent minutes or he's facing stretches where he's not in the rotation. I don't get it. There's, there's, there's always something positive he's going to bring. You know, if he's scoring for you, it, it's, it's, it's a bonus. But what he creates with his pace, the way he, the way he probes, the way he, you know, he loves to take the ball from one wing, go under the basket, dribble along the baseline, come out the other side. You know, the way he forces heads to swivel, he gets you all out of whack defensively because, it, you know, who takes the ball under the backboard along the baseline and comes out the other side? The only point guard I remember doing that pretty, uh, pretty consistently was Steve Nash. Like that was his mm-hmm. thing. You know, and he loved getting you to be turn your head. And, and so now your back is basically facing the guy you're guarding. And now you get some weak side cuts and slashes. If you're not paying attention to him, he'll make the reverse layup like he did over Porzingis last night. He'll kind of like sneak you real quick off the glass. That's a bonus. It's the it's just the other stuff, the pace, the number of loose balls he comes up with. Like he's a pest defensively. And there's another thing you cannot really quantify. At particularly at home. When T.J. McConnell makes a play, the reaction of the crowd is almost mm-hmm. worth, you know, one basket of his is worth like six points. One loose ball he dives on, you know, is worth three of those because of the way they react to him because he's just this guy that every person in the building kind of relates to, right? This small little guy out there, pesky, fiery, fighting, went the, went the hard route to get to the league, overcame so much, made a name for himself, and – People identify with that. And so it you can't really put a value on that, what that brings. So every time I've watched the pay, and I've watched the Pacers a lot over the last month. Every time I've watched them play, TJ McConnell is it seems like he's in the middle of their runs. He's on the floor when they get sparked. And so, yes, to answer your question, I think he should have been already, and I think he's got a great chance now to solidify himself so that you're going to see consistent minutes at, from him even in the postseason for the Indiana Pacers, because I just think he means that much to them and the way that his teammates react, react to him as well is worth an awful lot. Yeah, you, you hit on it. And I think going back to his days out here in Arizona, even like he's always been that type of player, that type of fan favorite because of the, the work ethic, the blue collar mentality, if you will, in terms of how he plays the game, dives, diving on loose balls, um, setting up teammates. Like he's an easy guy for that fan base to root for. And I, I think it's funny because a lot of Suns fans out here have been identifying point guard as a need. They've been looking at TJ McConnell. I know the Suns were interested in him last season, but it does feel like he's a guy that is going nowhere now, um, even before the Halliburton injury. So something to keep an eye on with him because he and Nemhard are going to be in charge of riding the ship over these next few weeks. I just real quickly to finish up and you know put a, put a bow on this TJ McConnell discussion. I, I, a quick story about him. So I was at the game in Wells Fargo when he was playing for the Sixers, and the Sixers had drafted Markel Fultz. And you remember Markel Fultz had all kinds of issues when they drafted him with his shoulder, and then you know he, I thought I think he really was just overwhelmed with the market and the pressure of being the number one pick, and it clearly affected him. Um, and he's going on to Orlando, and I think he's going to have a nice career, but he was not prepared to be the number one pick into a market like Philadelphia with all those expectations and how hard they can be on you if you struggle. So it was a combination of the injury, plus I think between the ears he got a little bit fried. He wasn't ready to play, and much less you know live up to being a number one pick. But here's what they did. they, they, they Brett Brown, they literally 
just decided arbitrarily they were going to sit T.J. McConnell, who had been playing a ton of minutes and was a crowd favorite, and they're going to go with Markel Fultz for a stretch of games. And I remember going out of some of those games, and, and, and T.J., of course, being the, you know, the good teammate that he is, was, was pulling for Markel Fultz, always talking to him, coming off the court. Meanwhile, he just got his warm-ups on the whole game, not seeing the floor. They're giving Fultz opportunity after opportunity. And I was at the game. I don't remember who they were playing. Particular night, they, uh, they called down to Markel Fultz to go into the game. He stands up as he's going by the coaching staff. There's words were like exchanged. It wasn't anything like obviously like he was giving him attitude, but it's clearly something happened where they and by the time he got to the scorers table, they had called him back. So he comes back and he goes over and he sits down and then TJ McConnell gets up and he jogs to the scorers table and I'm at the game and he got a standing ovation. Oh, wow. This is TJ McConnell, okay? This is a backup point guard, okay, mm-hmm. in the league. Um, and this is the impression that he had made. And it was because I think the crowd was just kind of like going, hey, what's fair is fair. He can help us right now. Markel Fultz is not ready to help us. And then TJ McConnell went in, and, of course, immediately within the first two or three possessions, he's picking some guy up in the backcourt, forcing a turnover, place is going crazy. And boom, TJ McConnell was back in the rotation. And so this is just the kind of guy that he is, and he he just provides something that your team needs. And he was sensational last night. I just thought he was fantastic. How had his imprint all over that win for Indiana and being shorthanded without Halliburton and, and TG McConnell was a big reason why they got that win. That's fantastic. That's that's both a tribute to the player that McConnell is, and also the fans that Philly sports fans are. Because I love that they would rather have the guy who could help them win over their number one overall pick. That's great. Um, let's talk about that game though, because I, I mean, obviously when Jason Tatum is not on the floor, it's not the same as beating the full strength Celtics. That's obvious. But I thought this was a great win for the Pacers. Like they dropped 44 in the third quarter without Halliburton. I think that speaks to what you were saying as far as the offensive engine that this team has, even without Halliburton out there. Um, do you, I, I don't want to ask if that type of thing is sustainable. It was a really good win. It was kind of, I don't want to say adrenaline fueled, but it was very much fueled by the emotions that come with when you see a star player on your team go down. Um, but what were your takeaways for Indiana? We'll start with them from this game. So here's a trend you're seeing with the Pacers, and the Bucks got caught up in this too against them. Um, they come out of the locker room at halftime, and they have the exact same. They're, they were going full throttle. Right from the get-go. They put up a 47 spot on Milwaukee in the third quarter, 44 against Boston, right? And now Milwaukee's got some issues defensively, as we're seeing, be exposed right now. I've got some concerns about them. They're going to win their share of games because their offense could be that lethal, and they've got Giannis and Lillard. But their defense leaves a lot to be desired, and the Pacers took advantage of it. Well, that's not the case with Boston. Boston is a team defensively that is one of the best in the league, and they can put certain lineups out there. Now, Tatum wasn't playing. I get it, but they still have more than enough. Offense and defense without Tatum. That's why they're the the best team in the league. That's why a lot of people think they're going to win a championship this year. It's the depth of talent, and it's the ability to play both ends of the floor with their starting five. All of those guys, two-way players, makes them special. So you got more than enough even without Tatum. And Jalen Brown, they're their second-best offensive player. He goes for 40. So he's humming along. It's not even like, okay, well, Tatum didn't play and Jalen Brown was off. So now what do you do? Guess what? Even if that were the case, Gerald, you still have Porzingis and Drew Holiday and a bunch mm-hmm. of three-point shooters. Like You still have enough, but Brown played great, and they still lose mm-hmm. the game because they can't guard the Pacers. 
And it's because of that throttle that they have. And, you know, look, playing 10 years in the league, I can tell you the beginning of the game, yeah, guys are kind of running in mud sometimes. It's almost like you're going up and down, right? Eight, 10 trips. Everybody gets a shot, right? So it's like, okay, everybody touch it? All right, now let's start playing. And you're five minutes into the game. But guys are like ready to go. Like they're playing hard and running hard. Sometimes out of the locker room at halftime, that first five, six minutes, that's much harder to get that to get that adrenaline going and get that energy ramped up quickly. The Pacers don't have a problem with that. And that's what I was saying before. Even without Halliburton, they play at a breakneck pace coming at you that no other team is giving you right now. And that is why they're still going to win their share of regular season games. That's the first thing that stood out to me was they came out of the locker room, no Halliburton, and boom, here we go. Hit the ground running. We're going to just come right at you, force you to retreat and transition, and then we're going to start moving the ball and see if you can catch up to it. So I was very impressed with that. And then the second thing that stood out to me was Boston comes all the way back, takes the lead late. And here you are, you're the Pacers. Now, this is a different thing than just playing for a couple quarters without Halliburton. Well, now you're in a one-possession game. You're down. You've had the lead most of the, most of the second half. Now, how do you respond in the last minute? And they were able to make plays. T.J. McConnell had a huge driving layup. They got a couple of free throws late in the game out of Matherin. And they get a stop when they have to have it. And they get the win. So it was just a team effort. They got it done in both ways. They got it done with uh, pace. They got it done by executing down the stretch. So very impressed with the way they've been playing overall. Um, and even without Jason Tatum, this is one of their signature wins they've had here over the last month. Yeah, great win for Indiana. To your point about the third quarters, there's always that kind of malaise in the building at the start of a third quarter because half oh, yeah. the fans are still coming back right. from concessions and everything. Oh, wow. If you go to get a soda at halftime in a game that features the Pacers and you come back, you're probably going to miss some sort of run to start the third quarter because they just hey, come out here, I'll, take that, I'll, take that a step, I'll take that a step further, right? You, what we're really mm -hmm. talking about here is when you look at the, the games, right, the lower bowl is half empty when the third quarter starts. And it's not because they're going and getting a pretzel and a Coke. They're hitting those lounges and stuff that are like right off the tunnels, man. So they're, they're in line to get that cocktail before they get back to their seat. So you're right. It's like, it's like, it's just, and so therefore you have to have this, this self motor because that you're not going to, you're not going to derive that a lot of times, even when you're at home, you're not going to derive that from the crowd because of what you just said. People are kind of slowly making their way back to their seats. And by, you know, four mm -hmm. minutes left in the third quarter, now they're sitting in for the last, you know, 15, 16 minutes of the game and they're like ready to go. But you're right, man. That first six, eight minutes, <laughs> you got to find that motive somewhere because you're not going to get an adrenaline rush from the crowd. Yeah. Word of advice. If you go to a Pacers game, make sure to go to concessions a few minutes before halftime because you will miss something to start the third if you are not in <laughs> your seat by the time that game starts. Um, let's look at the Celtics equation because obviously, you know, you can't be too concerned about a team that was missing their best player that has what eight losses on the season so far. Um, but what did you take from this game aside from the fact that, you know, one of the best defensive teams in basketball could not keep up with the Pacers and their high powered offense? Yeah, no, look, I think Boston, you scored 131 points without their best player. Okay. So there's not much more you can ask for um, if you're Missoula on the offensive end of the floor. That's, that's about as good as you're going to do. They shoot almost 50% from the three. You know, normally when Indiana was winning these shootout type games, a lot of times, you know, they're plus 15, 18, 21 from the three point line. There wasn't the case in this one. They only made two more threes than the Celtics. 
um, in, in a shootout game. So that's rare. So Boston kept up their end of the bargain by matching their three-point shooting, um, basically got to the line more than they did. They just had a very difficult time being able to slow down the basketball, whether it was off dribble penetration or through the air. They weren't catching up to it. And Indiana made a bunch of tough shots. And once they got mm-hmm. once they got some rhythm finally and they got some momentum and they erased the double-digit deficit that they were facing, it just seemed like they had a lot of belief and confidence then that they were going to be able to operate the way they needed to. And they're very comfortable in these trade basket type of games. They're, they're one of the most dangerous teams in the league. If you want to play this style, you want to make this into sort of like a glorified pickup game, they're like, let's go. We'll do this all day long because we're very comfortable doing it. we got a bunch of dudes with green light. A lot of shooters comes from all over different places. And uh, that to me is what stood out. I just felt like Boston didn't look the way they do nights when you like, are, you know, th- even their last two games, the way they just played against Indiana and the way they just, and they just beat Utah, like the way that they can, can really clamp down defensively and the way they switch so many things and take stuff away. And you just are having a hard time getting clean looks when they're at their best. That's what it looks like. That didn't look like that last night. Indiana was able to get space, move the ball ahead of their closeouts and, and square up and knock down big shots. Yeah, I, I think for me it was more about the Pacers, honestly, than the Celtics. I, I think yeah. they have an incredible defensive group. They have incredible defensive pieces. Um, and offensively, like you said, they kept up for the most part. I was not 100% convinced that Porzingis – I thought he was a good fit for the Celtics. I didn't think he was a great fit for the Celtics, but he has quickly proven me wrong in that regard. They're a dangerous team. And, and I am curious your thoughts about Jalen Brown because there's been a lot of discussion – about him this season um you know even noted celtics fans like bill simmons kind of wondering what the the ceiling is for jalen brown like what what is he contributing and it's a weird question to ask about a team that this that is this good drops 40 last night what have been your thoughts on jalen brown this season because obviously tatum is the guy offensively drew holiday one of the guys defensively what do you think about Jalen Brown and what the future holds for him, especially on the contract that he is currently on? Yeah, look, I, I'm a big Jalen Brown fan because I love how hard he plays. The guy plays defense. He takes on challenges on that end. He does not conserve any energy defensively. He's up pressuring. He plays passing lanes. He's a good help defender. And then, you know, he's going to be an aggressive attacking scorer on the other end of the floor. So I love his all-around game, and, and like I think he's a winner, and I think he's the kind of guy that you know can can you know be a top two or top three player on a contending team. He's already proven that. Boston has been to a final; they have been feels like perennially they're a conference finalist type team at minimum. He's been a big part of that. The one thing that I've always questioned about their the pairing with Tatum, they don't really do things on the court that are interactive with each other you know they they they're more like independently doing their thing every given night separate from each other and that's not oh necessarily a bad thing they've done a lot of winning and you've got two guys that are capable on any night of exploding and you got one on each side of the floor okay people saying well that's a wealth of riches it is but imagine when you have players that kind of complement each other more offensively in the way that they play um and, and how that can be more difficult to stop, to guard, to make the game easier for other people. That, so that's the only thing I've always wondered about 
he and Tatum, are they too similar in the way that they play and they're always sort of separate from each other every possession? There's not a lot that involves both guys when they run action. You think about it. It's one or the other, typically. And if one guy gets a hot hand, they'll ride that for a little bit. And the other guy's you know, perfectly willing to accept that because they know, you know it's going to be my turn maybe next quarter for six, seven minutes. They're going to ride me. But, you know, so that's the only question I have about that. Is is there is there a move you could make for Jalen Brown to bring in a play? First of all, if you trade Jalen Brown, you have to get back an all-league caliber player. You can't get back something for the future. This team is built to win right now. They've got veterans. They've been close. They're all in to win it right now. So you've got to get back a guy that's in his 20s that can play at that level, that's potentially an all-league player, certainly an all-star, if not an all-league player. And But maybe the difference would be fits better playing with Jason Tatum, where their, their skill set is more complementary of each other so you can run more action together. I don't know who that is off the top of my head. That's the only thing that I would say, because I per- personally, I'm a huge fan of Jalen Brown. And I think you're going to win a lot if he's on your team because the dude flat out competes. He loves the play, seems like a good teammate. Um, and he and Tatum seem like they have a pretty good relationship. Like it works. I just don't know if maybe there's a little more you can squeeze out of the value for Jalen Brown to get something that really would put you over the top. But it sounds silly because they've got more talent than any team in the NBA right now. Like they should win a championship this year based on their talent. Right. It's an interesting dynamic there because they do – a lot of the same things and, and two-way wings in this league are at a premium. Like if you have two all-star caliber wings in this league, you're going to be in a good place. And we've seen that with the fact that I think they've been in the last five conference finals in the East. Like they're clearly putting together the success. I think they're going to continue to do what we see with so many guys in this league, so many superstars that are held to the standard. And until they win a championship, then we can finally appreciate them and what they do together. I think there is a little bit of your turn, my turn at times with them because they have, you know, skill sets that don't necessarily complement each other and do some of the similar things. Um, at best, that can look like, oh man, we were just stopping Tatum and now Brown is doing the same thing to us. And at worst, it can look like, well, okay, whose turn is it now? Um, but it, it is interesting to me because I do feel like Jalen Brown's skill level talent and, and like you said, drive, just how hard he works on both ends kind of gets lost in the equation when people focus on the contract side of things. There'll definitely be questions if the Celtics fall short this year, because to this point, they do look like the best team in basketball. They have a very good chance to win a championship this year. Obviously that's their expectation for this season. Um, but I, I, I just think that sort of thing gets overlooked. So I was curious what your thoughts on that. Um, any other Celtics Pacers thoughts? I did want to ask before we move on, uh, was that a foul, the one that got overturned, the Jalen Brown getting blocked from behind? Did you think that was a foul? And did you think the Porzingis foul on Matherin was a foul? Uh, listen, I, I'll say that it, it definitely seemed like the, the, the Indiana benefited from the calls to yeah. late in that game. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think that they benefited from it. It's interesting when you are able to see it that many times in a replay, you, you know, you just get such – a definitive look at it. And it, it feels like we put rules in place now to eliminate all of that stuff. Like this should never really be questions anymore about it. But sometimes even with that, it's, it's difficult, but no, I, th- I thought that Indiana certainly benefited from that. Yeah. I, I thought he got ball from behind on that block on Brown, but he clearly made contact with the head. So that was an interesting one for me. Um, but let's go ahead and talk about 
uh, my hometown team out here in Phoenix. Oh boy, Suns Clippers. Um, let's start with the Clippers because we'll, we'll keep it positive to start things off. Um, they started off 0-5 since the James Harden trade. And ever since then, in mid-November, when they've turned it around, I think they have the second best record in the NBA. Their big three is outscoring opponents by a massive margin when they're sharing the court together. I, I felt like it was a good dichotomy of one team that has a big three that hasn't gotten the reps and the time to figure it out yet, and one team that definitely has and has all of the right pieces around those guys to be able to attack. Because let's be honest, like, it was pretty much in the Clippers' favor from mid-second quarter on, um, and then in the fourth quarter, they pulled away, turned it into an absolute blowout. It was pretty impressive win for L.A., they beat the Suns a couple of days ago as well in pretty impressive fashion. And it to me, it felt like until the fourth quarter, the Suns had actually put together a fairly decent defensive effort. Like the Clippers have hit some really tough shots in these two games. But what have been your takeaways from the Clippers and particularly in this game? Well, look, you can't deny that they have tremendous flow and rhythm right now with what they're doing offensively um they, they, when they added Harden you know I I said at the time like I you know it's not ne necessarily going to make me believe in the Clippers anymore because any more than I already do I mean because my whole thing is if Kawhi Leonard's healthy then that's what it's going to hinge on because if he's healthy fully healthy and looks like the same Kawhi Leonard um that led Toronto to a championship like he's able to do those things nightly well then they're a contender because they've got enough talent to do that um, with Paul George, and they, they've got a more than serviceable center in Zubac. They've got shooting uh, with Powell. They got Terrence Mann, who could play both ends of the floor. So, you know, I'm saying that's enough. But when you added Harden, I, I wanted to see how it was going to fit. It's going to take time. He kept saying it. He was right. And I will say this. I don't know that I've ever enjoyed watching James Harden play more than I do right now because the one thing that I'm, that I'm seeing, I have a, a, a renewed appreciation for this guy's vision and ability to deliver the basketball on time. I, and that's, it stood out to me last night. There were several passes he made that had to be delivered exactly when he did, or there's no opportunity there for the recipient. And, and, and one of them was a simple transition pass, but he gave it at exactly the right time while the defender was backpedaling and then couldn't turn his hips in time to make a contest at the rim. The way he throws lobs in exactly the right location where only one guy can go get it, even if a defender jumps. His pocket passes. When he comes off a ball screen, he throws that little that little skip pass, a little bit of English on it, so it hits the ground, softens up, and comes up and is catchable for a guy like Zubac. I just have been admiring him as a playmaker in his passing because I'm not so focused on the fact that he's having a weird, you know, three for seventeen night, or he's having a a one for nine night where he just stops shooting altogether and his team needs him to because the, here's the deal. They don't need him to score. It's just a bonus. And when one of those guys is out of the game, you have another elite offensive player that is in a great spot because he doesn't feel the pressure of having to deliver every night as a scorer. And I think that derailed him in Philadelphia, particularly in the postseason. I think it's it hurt him in Houston a couple years in the postseason. Just that pressure of having to have it tonight. My team needs it. They need me to get 30-35 because that's what they're used to seeing out of me. And I think he would feel that build up and he'd make it almost the moment too big for himself to operate. He would change the way he played. 
So now he doesn't have to worry about any of that stuff. He can just go play basketball mainly as a facilitator and then pick his spots when to score. And I'm actually enjoying watching him play. Um, And he has given them an added level, I think, now. When you look at the way he is making the game easier for everybody, um, they are rolling right now. There's no other way to put it. And, Gerald, I've said this before. There's not a lot of teams in this league that really impress me anymore with their defense. It's an offense-driven league. It's a shot-making league. It's, it seems like I watch a lot of nights. Nobody can stop anybody. It's just you know one great shot after another. They're one of the teams that can ramp it up defensively. They do have the personnel to be able to do that, and, and they can be quick, and they can pressure, and they can be active and get their hands on balls and get out and get stuff easy. Not many teams can do it. They can. So right now, it's happening on both ends of the floor, and honestly, Phoenix – when this thing started to get away from them in the, really the third quarter, it just looked like they were kind of waving the white flag, man. Like they didn't want they didn't want a part of the fight. And they were demoralized by how hard it was to guard them. And that's not a great sign for Phoenix. And I think they've had a number of nights like that. And they haven't had a lot of time with the big three. They were out there last night and they gave up 138 points and they got beat by 27. That's the kind of thing that has you walking off the court, shaking your head a little bit and frustration sinking in a little bit, which is what I think you're referring to when you say like the state of, of panic almost in the air in Phoenix about this particular group. Um, I, I, that's why, you know, they, those guys all played and they got smoked. And now you're comparing yourself to other top teams in the West and they're coming up short. Yeah. I, I think the Clippers are a bad matchup for the Suns in particular and and they're, they're a scary team, them and the Nuggets, because of the – like, you just look at the big threes between these two teams. Like, Harden, Paul George, and Kawhi are just significantly bigger than Booker, Bradley Beal, and Kevin Durant. And I think that gave them problems. Um, you look at that box score, I don't think the Clippers had anyone score more than 25 points. It was a balanced attack. I think that speaks to the cohesion they've been able to build. Um, I'll be honest, like, when they got off to that 0-5 start – I was kind of selling a little bit of my Clipper stock. I was a little concerned. Um, I think most people were, but I think the one thing that got overlooked is exactly what you hit on, the fact that James Harden doesn't have to score for this team. The Clippers, I don't know if they needed a point guard necessarily, but having someone of James Harden's playmaking vision abilities really changes things for them. And if you do have a night where James Harden goes for you know, 30, 35, 40, like we know, he's capable of doing every now and then like that makes the Clippers downright unfair. Um, Obviously, you know, this team's success hinges on being healthy. I think every season for the last two or three years, we've said, well, if Paul George and Kawhi Leonard are healthy, the Clippers could contend, but we've never fully believed that like, that's actually going to happen. I hope for their sake that that winds up being the case this year, because we're seeing what it looks like fully optimized with the right role players around them. They have an incredible starting five together. Um, their you know, net ratings and, and plus minus in those minutes has been astronomical. They're a dangerous team for me, and they have a lot of wing guys. They have a deep bench. They have a great coach. They're, they're, them and the Nuggets are my two teams right now that I'm looking at in the West. Like, okay, this is a stacked conference. There are a lot of contenders out here, but those two are the ones that scare me the most. Let's talk about the Suns now because they are not one of those teams and everyone thought that they would probably be or hopefully be. Um, this is an interesting team to me because 
like I said, like they haven't gotten the minutes together yet, which is alarming because we're 36, 37 games into the season. Their big three has played a grand total of 108 minutes over six games together. They're a plus 23 in those minutes, and they have a 121 offensive rating, but they've only gotten 70 minutes with their preferred starting lineup that includes Grayson Allen and Yusuf Nurkic. And I made this comparison on Twitter the other day. If you go back to the 2021 season where the Suns had that starting lineup of Chris Paul, Devin Booker, Mikhail Bridges, Jay Crowder, and DeAndre Ayton, that lineup was one of the best five-man lineups in basketball for a two-year stretch there. But people forget over those first 16 games, they were eight and eight. Like they really struggled. It got so bad that people were wondering, do we need to make a change? Do we need to start Cam Johnson over Jay Crowder? Because this thing that should be working is not working. They had a negative net rating through those first 16 games, but they had like 200 minutes together in those 16 games to build, to make mistakes, to tape their lumps, kind of like we saw with the Clippers in those first five games where they went 0-5. This Suns team, we're 36, 37 games in, and they still haven't, they barely played 100 minutes together, and that's including last night. I'm curious how you view the Suns, because on the one hand, they haven't gotten the reps together, and there's that built-in excuse, but at the same time, there's more problems for this team than just that, it feels like. It feels like there are so many, like the offense should be better than what it's been. The defense has been a concern this whole time, it feels like body language has been bad over certain stretches. Like we talked about it on the last show, Kevin Durant's body language was bad for that Christmas day game last night. It felt like everyone's was bad as they were getting wiped off the floor. I'm curious how you view the Suns because they've had stretches where they've looked great. Seven game win streak, five and one stretch. They've had stretches where it's like, okay, are we concerned about Frank Vogel's job security and what's going to happen with this team? So how, how do you view the Suns? Well, you know, look, the world we live in now, um, when you put together these teams, the way that, that you know, some of these teams are, are put together, the window is super tight. Like, we acquired these guys, it's win. You got a couple years, year and a half. Like, this better look like it's going to lead to a championship. Or, or certainly, I'm, and I'm sure, like, I'm not in the Phoenix market, you are. I'm sure on the all sports uh, talk radio that they're talking about Frank Vogel. Um, that's just the nature of the business when you have this kind of talent, this kind of offensive talent on your roster. Like, I don't think there's a team in the league that has three guys on it at the top of the roster that have this kind of firepower, you know, collectively, because all three guys can beat you from deep off the catch. They can beat you from deep, deep off the dribble. They're great mid-range jump shooters. All three can get to the rim. And all three are, you know, above average passers. But the one thing that does stand out when I watch them you don't have a single guy out there that's out there specifically to just push pace and facilitate and find. And it gets evidenced by the fact that Grayson Allen, who is shooting 47% from the three-point line this year, took three shots in 31 minutes. That can't happen. That cannot happen. Because that can't be as simple as a team making a determination, well, stay home with Grayson Allen. Not in the NBA, man. Because otherwise – all these guys that are great catch and shoot players would never get any shots if that was effective defense. It's not effective because typically if you want to play that way, there are gaps to be had when there's no help coming because they're chest to chest with a shooter. And if that's a primary facilitator getting in that gap and there's no help coming off of Grayson Allen, they're going to pick you apart. 
um, by by finding guys or getting to the rim themselves. And they don't have that guy. They, they, these are three highly accomplished offensive players that individually are a load for anyone to handle, but they don't have someone that's just strictly out there to create easier shots for other people. You wonder if that ultimately is going to be a problem for them. And here's the other thing I think I'm noticing. They start off the game and they seem intent on guarding. Like they're into it. Durant's always been a guy that's, you know, I think was an underrated defender until he got to Golden State. And all of a sudden people started admiring his defense because his scoring numbers weren't as gaudy every night. And now all of a sudden you're noticing this weak side block shot potential and like the way he, the way he can guard isolation players on the wing. So he wants to play defense. I've I've never thought Devin Booker didn't want to play defense. Like he competes, he gets after it on that end of the floor. Bradley Beal's probably the weakest of the three. He was never asked to play much defense in Washington because he was just going to score so much. Um, I've noticed as their offense struggles at times in the game, their defense is affected by it. Right, the body language is different. They don't seem as connected on that end if they're not having a great flow offensively. So I'm a little bit worried about that. Um, The bottom line is this with the Suns. None of us know, Gerald. We don't know. It's just not a large enough sample size with those three guys together. If you're just being honest and fair about it, it's just not enough because they could find eventually such a rhythm with the three of them. And by the way, Frank Vogel has to figure out with more time with all three the best way to stagger their minutes so that you always have two of these guys on the court at all times. And then you know, you're starting the game, you're starting the third, and you're ending the game with all three, all right? So that's about 18 to 24 minutes right there that they're out there together. Well, what about the rest of it? What about the other 24 to 30 minutes of the game? How are you going to manage that with who's – with? The, and he doesn't have enough time to even practically do that because they haven't been available to him. So he's going to get better with that. They'll find a better rhythm collectively. But the one thing I think to continue to look at is, do they miss having that one guy that's just a natural floor leader that that gets guys where they're supposed to be and delivers a ball when it has to be delivered so that everybody on the roster benefits, Um, not just three guys that are great individually offensively. It might not be enough in this league to, to have that. And I think that's what we're kind of wondering about them. But you cannot pass final judgment until you see idea. But look, if that – and look, that basically takes us up to the All-Star break. If they stay healthy till then, till the trading deadline, we're going to know a lot more about them. And don't be surprised if something happens with the Phoenix Suns because that will give us enough time to know how do they stack up with the Nuggets and the Clippers and the Timberwolves and the Thunder and the Mavericks, you know, and all these teams and the Lakers – how do they stack up with those teams? Because they'll have played all of them by then. You have a much better idea if they're all healthy. Yeah, I, it's an interesting problem for this team because, and this is what I keep telling Suns fans, is I understand the frustration because this team should be better than what it's been. Um, but they were a top-heavy roster. We knew that going in. Like we knew just based on how the contracts were structured, you're relying on a lot of vet minimum guys. I think they got a couple of guys that I wasn't expecting to go for that low. But outside of, you know, Grayson Allen and Eric Gordon, you don't have guys that you can rely on. You have a lot of offense-only guys or defense-only guys. Like, I love Josh Okogie. I love Jordan Goodwin, what they bring on that end of the floor. 
offensive rebounding. Like they just make those gritty hustle plays, but you don't have to worry about them shooting threes. You, if you guard the big three and they're out there and it ends with a corner three from them, you are perfectly satisfied as a defense because you know, there's a good chance you got to stop on that possession. And so I feel like for Vogel, especially not having those three guys out there, like last night was their sixth game together. And one of those six was the one where Bradley Beal turned his ankle in the first quarter. So it's more like really five games with the big three. That is hard to build a rotation around and figure out how do I stagger these lineups? Who works best when KD and Book are off the floor and it's just Bradley Beal leading a bench unit? Who works best when, you know, Kevin Durant is out there? It's tough to build that and figure that out when you're only seeing bits and pieces of it. When you've got guys like Nasir Little, Yuta Watanabe, um, KBD, who have all been inconsistent and haven't been what you thought they were. Like Yuta's three-point shooting completely fell off. KBD, the three-point shooting last year in San Antonio when he had a career year, has not translated over. It's just little things like that that add up and make it impossible to build a rotation um, the concern for me, to your point about the needing someone to facilitate, I think point book has been good, but it's clearly not something that you can roll with alone because so many times defenses are throwing junk defenses at him, double teams, blitzes, mm-hmm. top locking, all these different things to get him off the ball. And book has always said, like, I'm going to make the right play. I trust my teammates. Well, that's great, but your teammates are not doing a lot with that trust right now to make defenses pay. So basically, defenses are taking him out of the game. He's not being aggressive as a scorer because he's trying to get other people involved. And he struggled with that balance between scorer and playmaker over this stretch. And the idea was we have Bradley Beal, so we have a multiple ball handler attack. Well, that hasn't really manifested because Beal hasn't been out there enough. They don't have the chemistry. And now it's starting to feel like, okay, Book might be optimized more playing off the ball. We're taking away what Devin Booker does best. The point book thing can work well for stretches to throw a different look, but it might not be the best, you know, primary thing. And the problem is, I don't know how you fix that because you look at the roster book is their best ball handler and creator. Like externally, what starting caliber point guard are you going to be able to trade to with Nasir Little's contract and a couple of second round picks? The, The solution has to come internally. And that's a tough thing to for Suns fans to swallow right now because it, it's it's not looking great out here. And the offense goes stagnant in fourth quarters. That's the other thing that stood out to me. The offense yeah, devolves into point, pickup ball. Yeah, your point about Booker is really good. Because here's what I'm saying: like, it you have to have somebody that uh, who for whom scoring is the afterthought or the secondary part of their game. And actually, the Clippers now have two guys who are Hall of Fame players, okay? Both have won an MVP in this league who now have put scoring second. And Russell Westbrook's the other guy. And actually, I was going to mention him earlier. You know, he played 15 minutes last night. I think he had 9.7 assists. You're going to, it'd be very difficult for you to find 15 minutes from any player in the league this year that had more action and involvement in the game that Russ Westbrook had last night. He was all over it. And he was like going at Booker in the post and they got a little thing going between the two of them. And he scored on him. He's rocking the baby on him and all that. He's also a relentless offensive rebounder now. And that, that got Booker a foul, you know, at one point in the game, he looked kind of frustrated, like, man, 
why, you know, two guards aren't used to having to box out guys like that that are running in 100 miles an hour to get an offensive rebound. Like Russell Westbrook, just through sheer energy, and now putting scoring second, and this was a guy obviously in Oklahoma City after Durant left. He, I mean, he had a score, he had a rebound, he facilitate, won an MVP doing that. Scoring now comes after for him. He had seven assists in 15 minutes. James Harden had 10 assists. You get 17 assists from the two guys that are your primary facilitators. And look, I know Kawhi and Paul George are going to you know, start the offense a lot. They're going to run ball screen and look for their shots. They're hunters. That's how they're going to play first. Devin Booker is a hunter, like a grizzly bear, man. There's, they're out there hunting meat, looking for shots. If you put a salad bar in front of a grizzly bear for, you know, for a couple hours a day, he's not interested in the croutons and the cherry tomatoes, man. He wants to go hunt. And that's what Devin Booker is by his nature. So he can make plays. It's not like he doesn't have a handle good enough to go facilitate. It's not in his primary nature as a basketball player. And that's what I'm saying. That's what they lack. And the Clippers have two guys that are both Hall of Fame players that probably could go hunt shots if they wanted to, but they know at this stage of their career, this is better for the team and they're capable of doing it. So now they're primarily facilitators and they score when the opportunities present themselves. The Suns don't really have a guy like that on their roster that they're playing because it's those three. And then you've got some spot up, primarily spot up shooters. You got Nurkic, who's a big, who's going to, you know, pick and dive and slash, get on the offensive glass every now and then you throw it into him in the post. And then you've got, like you said, some defensive guys like Goodwin and Akogi and Bates Diop and these guys that are going to be out there for, for that reason. They don't have the one thing that I'm talking about. And I don't know if when they looked at their roster, they thought they didn't need it because these guys are so good offensively, that's enough. But I think the other guys on the roster need it. They, those three guys don't need that guy. The other dudes do. They need somebody that's primarily looking out for them to get them shots, you know, for the Clippers. It's to get the Zubach's lobs and the Tice's lobs and the Norman Powell open threes. Like, who's going to be thinking about that? And that's what I'm not sure the Suns have. Yeah, it, it's tough because the Suns, it felt like they made four main gambles in the offseason and all of them are not paying off. The first one, obviously, the Bradley Beal trade, he hasn't been available long enough for them to really capitalize on having a three-level scorer out there like him who has his own gravity, making it impossible to stop lineups with those three out there. We haven't seen it enough. The other one, uh, you know, trading for Yusuf Nurkic and counting on his offense, his connectivity as a passer his screen setting ability on the offensive end to outweigh some of his deficiencies defensively. We've seen teams attack him in the pick and roll late in games, go directly at him. And he's, he's done a lot better than I thought he would, but he's at the end of the day, he's still flawed on that end. The other one hiring a defensive minded coach with an offensive minded roster, like Vogel hasn't been able to elevate the defense to the level it needs to be yet. And the offense is nowhere near where it's supposed to be. And, and the last one, point book, like obviously you mentioned it. If you look at the roster, I think that they thought that they would have enough playmaking between their big three to not need a traditional point guard. I think they overcorrected from looking at last year with Chris Paul and seeing Chris Paul, you know, move closer to the twilight of his career and said, look, point book was great for us in the playoffs against the Denver Nuggets. Like he played great in that series, handling the load once Chris Paul went down. Maybe we have enough between him and Bradley Beal and Kevin Durant, this multiple ball handler attack. But if Beal isn't out there for more than half the season, you don't have that multiple ball handler attack 
I think Jordan Goodwin, they expected him to fill the backup point guard role and his playmaking and facilitating just hasn't been there. So now you're left with a situation where you're looking at, wow, we really traded campaign for nothing so we could sign Bull Bull. And now we could really use a point guard out there to help facilitate these things. It feels like all four of those major gambles that they made have not panned out yet. Some of them I think could still could, but to your point about needing a facilitator, looking at this roster, it's not currently on this roster. So how do you trade for a guy who can come in, be a starter, not give up too much size and primarily facilitate and push pace? Those are a lot of boxes to check with limited resources. So it kind of feels like you're banking on the big three figuring it out and developing a lot better chemistry that not only works for those three, but where you can stagger lineups and still manage to keep people involved. Because like I said, fourth quarters, it feels like pickup ball. It feels like your turn, my turn, isolation basketball. And that can work for you in stretches in the playoffs when you need a bucket. But man, in the regular season, when you need to keep role players involved and keep the offense humming, that's a tall task to handle. No question. It's actually, it, this is why I like last year's team going in with you know Chris Paul, Booker, Durant, because Chris Paul brings what I'm talking about. Of course, the injuries derailed that team and they just didn't have enough time together. And then Chris Paul goes down in the playoffs and they were just overmatched um, a year ago. But now looking at this roster, there's just not even a guy like that on the entire roster, which is crazy because you, you would think even if they had a TJ McConnell like guy on their bench, right. you know, that that's all he's out there to do. Maybe that's going to be better for some of these role players I'm talking about to get easier shots because he's pushing the pace and he's going to think shot at, at you know as a last result, last resort. Let me get these guys some shots and some touches and some looks and it maybe energize the rest of those role players because like I said, and even Eric Gordon I think didn't get enough shots last night and he had a game recently where he took three shots and playing mm-hmm. 25 minutes. And these guys are hired guns, Grayson Allen, Eric Gordon. Like they have to get shots. If you're, not, if you're on the floor, those two guys are not getting – although I will say this, Grayson Allen's impressed me with his all-around game. I think he's tough. He competes. He, he's been a very impressive man. He, he, you know, I, I just like the way he goes about it. He's more than just a one-dimensional catch-and-shoot player, but that's primarily what he does and how he's going to get paid. So if you got guys like that on your roster, the, the ball needs to come to them when they know that that's, that's someone out there looking for them specifically. It's going to keep them on their toes. It's going to make them run a little bit harder, get to their spots a little bit quicker – um, and I'm not sure right now that that flow is necessarily there for them. So we'll see. Look, their next 10 games, I just looked at it. They've got basically in, in the next 10 games, they've got only two games where you look at it and say, these teams are kind of like, you know, Portland completely out of the mix, a bad team mm-hmm. in the West. And then Chicago, who's played much better lately, but currently mm-hmm. sit there in the nine spot. You know, they could end up out of the play in. Who knows how their season is going to go. Um, those other eight teams are all solid playoff teams. All of those teams. So you're gonna get you're gonna get a real test here over the next three weeks. And if hopefully all three of these guys play every night, we will have a much uh, I think more intelligent conversation on the actual ceiling of this team by the time you get to the All Star break, based on what's yep. coming up for them and, and finally getting some time together. I'm very much looking forward to that because the one thing that's hard, like you said, we just don't know. It's hard to discuss this team because we just haven't gotten the film or the sample sizes to really evaluate what they are, what they can be. Um, But I will say Eric Gordon took a ton of flack for what he said after he took two shots in the Sacramento game that they lost by double digits for wanting more shots. But he was kind of right when he was (laughs) alluding to the lack of flow 
um, the lack of consistent shots that guys are getting night in, night out. And I think Grayson Allen taking only three shots last night was another reminder of that. He was kind of right. As much as you don't want to have a veteran bench player saying, I need more shots, like at the end of the day, he wasn't wrong. Uh, Tim, any final thoughts about the Suns before we get out of here? No, I just, uh, you know, I know that right now you probably got a, uh, you know, a, a new drama series has been created in Phoenix. You know, Phoenix 911 is probably, you know, a real popular show out there right now because when you put together this kind of talent, you're just expecting immediate results and it's all going to be smooth sailing, man. The West is loaded. The top of the East is loaded. It's hard. It is hard to navigate through this. Uh, my only advice to people in Phoenix that love this team is just be patient. We, you have to give them more time together. Uh, to know. And these losses certainly are demoralizing when you go up against another juggernaut and you think, okay, here we go. This will give us an, this will give us a barometer. And it's not exactly what you were expecting. Um, don't think that this is going to be the final result. So it, it's, it's just going to take time. We'll be talking about them a lot because of who they have on their roster, but I'm just smart enough to know that these things can turn once you give guys enough time to play together and they work through some stuff. And that includes Frank Vogel having a full roster at his disposal and him coaching differently. Um, it's it's going to feel different to him to have those guys out there too. So let's just give him time. That's my only final word on that. Listen to the man, Suns fans, Tim Legler. He knows what he's talking about. Uh, we're going to delay that broadcast of Chicken Little Central that's coming here on the 2023-24 Phoenix Suns team. Uh, but I think that's going to do it for this edition of the All NBA Podcast. You can follow Tim on Twitter at Legs ESPN. You can follow me on Twitter at Gerald Borgay. Adam will hopefully be back here soon. But until next time, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. Give us five stars. Follow us on Twitter. And we'll be back soon to talk about some more hoops. Mm-hmm.